If you want to lead an extraordinary life, find out what the ordinary do and don't do it. So says a best-selling author who probably most of us have never heard of. But such a, a quote just shows the general, I think, uh, disdain uh, of our world for that which is ordinary. Uh, and we looked at this last week, but we saw last week at how God calls us as Christians to faithfulness in some very ordinary, that is very non-spectacular ways. And how we are therefore not to belittle or to demean uh, such faithfulness, but actually Paul calls us to strive for faithfulness in very ordinary ways. And again, ordinary in our day is viewed as mediocre, and uh, that's not what we're talking about when I say ordinary. We're not saying it's mediocre. We can still do it with excellence, but we're talking about normal, everyday, day-to-day things. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12, which is where we'll be today, Paul urges us to be faithful in four rather ordinary ways, normal ways. So we have, as we've been working through the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, we've come to this section that is, is quite practical, um, in start, beginning at the start of chapter 4, and uh, through really till the end of the book. And even as we get in next week to uh, some issues of eschatology, end times stuff over the next couple of weeks, uh, Paul is, is responding to questions, responding to the issues they have, but making some very practical applications for them. It's not just... Uh, an argue, a philosophical argument or a theological argument or whatever. He's, he's going to make his case, uh, uh, make, say what he says in order to give them pr- practical instruction. And so right now, as we're in verses 9 to 12, uh, again, Paul urges us to be faithful in four ordinary ways. And we looked at the first one last week, which is uh, brotherly love. And uh, we'll be looking at the other three today. And so we're going to see that faithfulness in these ordinary things is actually a way that we walk properly before outsiders, that is, before unbelievers. So it's how we adorn the gospel. We might wonder sometimes what, you know, if people look in at us and we're a believer, what ought they, what should they see? And these are four things that Paul says would help us ensure that we are walking properly before unbelievers. We'll also see it's also how we relate rightly to one another. So let's read. Uh, We're just going to read verses 9 to 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that it is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So again, there are four things Paul urges his readers to do. We looked at verses 9 and 10 last week, and we focused in on brotherly love being the first of these rather uh, ordinary, normal things. And we're going to look at three more. So we're going to see faithfulness includes... Abounding in love, which we looked at last week, and then living quietly, minding 
your own affairs and working hard at your job. And then briefly at the end, we'll look at two purposes of this, that we might walk rightly before outsiders and that we might have right relationships within the church as well. So first thing, ordinary faithfulness includes living quietly. Living quietly. So Paul again says this, uh, end of verse 10, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more, that is brotherly love, and to aspire to live quietly. So I take living quietly to mean not causing unnecessary public disturbance. And I'll try to explain that as we go. An unnecessary public disturbance. So I think the, the three things we're going to look at today are all very much related. Uh, so we're going to talk about them independently of each other, but also kind of as a, a group as well. There's some overlap. Um, so Paul begins here by saying, aspire to live quietly. This is what he urges, uh, urges us to do. To aspire means to make it your ambition, to make it your goal, your aim. This is what you're setting out to do, you're aspiring to. Then he says to live quietly. And this word for quiet means peacefully. Uh, it means avoiding anything that could be construed as disturbing public order. Uh, elsewhere, it's translated also as rest. Uh, Luke 23, when Jesus talks about, or when it talks about a Sabbath rest, uh, this word is there, so it can mean rest. In other places, it can just mean simply remain quiet, as in not saying anything. Uh, further, outside of the Bible, in uh, Greek literature, it can be used, it's used uh, to express the opposite of being involved in the public discourse of political life of that day. So Philo of Alexandria is a, was a Hellenistic, that is a Greek-speaking Jew in Alexandria, uh, in Egypt. And he was a philosopher in the first century. He, he uses it in that way uh, as a contrast to being public kind of political figure engaging in all of the public discourse of the day. The reality is we don't know for sure why it is Paul gives the Thessalonians this command to live quietly. We don't know exactly what was happening in the church. We only have one side of the conversation here as we read 1 Thessalonians. Uh, so we don't know the precise situation, why it is he's giving this, uh, this command. It's possible, one, one possible explanation that I think is, is certainly plausible uh, underneath this command to live quietly, and to mind our own affairs, to work with our hands, is uh, the system known as patronage. So let me just explain this briefly. Uh, we've talked a little about it earlier when we were First Thessalonians near the beginning. Um, but there's one commentator, his name's Gene Green, makes this case, and I think it's plausible, so I'll put it to you to consider. Um, so the pat patronage was uh, an, uh, the wide-ranging social institution of the day. That, that much we know. Um, where you would have a client who would then attach themselves underneath a patron. And there would be uh, an exchange of, of goods and services between the two, which, depending on the situation, uh, could differ on what exactly the service is and what's being uh, exchanged. Um, in some cases, the, the patron would supply the food and the things necessary to live to the client. Uh, so the patron is the more important figure. Um, and then often the, the, the client then would, would do the patron's bidding in, in public. And a lot of times, even if that client was a citizen, would even 
uh, vote for them in the local assembly and kind of argue for the things that the patron uh, stands for. And so they kind of, in a sense, work for the, the patron, in, in, and in response, the patron supplies the needs of the client. So it kind of replaces a, a job. Um, so it's possible that in Thessalonica, it's quite possible that there were uh, some of the churches, some of the members of the church were also clients, uh, working in a sense for other people and arguing in the political affairs of the day, and uh, and 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 it's possible that they became disruptive in their involvement uh, in 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 the political process. So we know we've talked about this. We do know that they were being persecuted by their fellow countrymen, that is, other Greeks. Uh, chapter two, verse fourteen. We looked at that. So it's possible that their involvement in public affairs in this way uh, was further harming the Christians, further harming the church. And so Paul desires them to quit this by living quietly as opposed to being public and loud and outspoken about everything for their patron. And he's going to, of course, then commend them to get a job, <laughs> work with their hands instead of, of this. So that, that, that's a very, I think, plausible um, understanding of, of what is underneath, uh, what is behind Paul's words. But regardless of the exact situation, we, we do know that they were being persecuted. And so whatever it is that they were doing that's the opposite of living quietly, uh, it seems as though this was not helping the situation any. And so I think, again, it's best to understand what Paul is saying here, is that he's telling them not to stir things up unnecessarily in public affairs, in public matters. And again, when you combine it with what we're going to talk about, minding your own affairs, getting a, a job, working with your hands, it seems that they're unnecessarily in the midst of or unnecessarily creating problems. And in, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 to 12, when we eventually get there, uh, we'll see that uh, quietly, this idea of, working, uh, of, of living quietly is contrasted to being a busybody. A gossip, somebody who's, who's not working uh, with their hands and is, has time on their hands and they're talking and they're just stirring things up with their mouths. That's contrasted with being quiet. So Paul here is commending quiet living. This is, is, can be difficult to try to grasp or try to understand what, what does he mean because we also know that Christians in the New Testament and throughout the world and throughout history have actually caused quite a stir. And it's not, it's not condemned in the Bible. So even Jesus himself uh, tended to stir things up and even got himself executed. Um, and we see that in Paul. In fact, in, in, when Paul got to Thessalonica, you can see this in Acts 17, when he got there to share the gospel with people, there was a large uproar so much that they uh, had to, to leave the city for their own safety. And yet that's not condemned, but here we have Paul uh, commending us to quiet living. So here, here's how I would suggest this, this works. That this quietness of living, again, is, is, is referring to not unnecessarily stirring things up in public, um, but that this doesn't mean we should not be proclaiming Christ, that we should not be evangelizing. I think it means we, we should be uh, proclaiming Christ. We should be evangelizing. That this would be, uh, if that causes a stir, that's a necessary one because it's the fruit of our obedience to the Lord uh, causing a stir. And I think that's why 
Paul in Acts 17 causes this stir, but it's not condemned anywhere in Scripture because he's doing what's necessary. He's being obedient to the Lord. So again, I think this, what we are called to, is, is not causing unnecessary uh, offense in public. And the reality is the gospel will be offensive. And if Christians get significant opposition to that, if we face that, um, then that doesn't fall into the category of unnecessary offense. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. And so trying to help, I mean, if you think of the, the gospel message, trying to help people understand that God is holy, that he's perfect, that he can't just look aside when, when there's sin, that he won't just sweep it under the rug. Trying to help people understand that, see that as the, the uh, that God is holy as the Bible presents him, that to help them understand that they are, in fact, sinners, that God will judge them, judge sin, judge sinners, and that there's nothing that a person can do to make themselves right before God, that they must look to another, they must look to Jesus Christ crucified, died, risen again, that they must look to him by faith to receive his righteousness, that we have none of our own, that that gets to the root of our pride and of our sinfulness as, as people. So as we try to lovingly and convince people of that and share that with people, that does and will cause offense. And we see that throughout the scriptures and throughout Christian history. 2 Corinthians 2.16, Paul even says that the gospel, they, he is the aroma of Christ. Uh, in some cases, it's the aroma of life. To life, in other cases, it's the aroma of death. So he understands as he presents the gospel, it appeals to people to be reconciled to God. Some people hear it and believe it and live, and others, for them, it compounds their condemnation and they hate it and they're hardened in their sin. Paul saw that and knew that. And so living quiet then is, to, is, is consistent with the gospel sounding forth from us. So if you'll remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, uh, Paul commends them, the Thessalonians, because the, the word of the Lord, the word of the gospel, has sounded forth from them. It's gone throughout Macedonia. It's gone all over the place from them. And, and he commends them for that. And so this quietness uh, is not inconsistent with the gospel sounding forth. So the best we can, then, we want to let the gospel itself, if there's going to be offense, let the gospel itself be the thing that causes that offense, not our lives or our arguing about everything. And so even as we seek to sound forth the gospel, as we seek to evangelize as well, um, it's not to be done in a panic. Paul worked. He worked hard. He explains this to us in this book. We've looked at that. He worked uh, he ate Jesus, we see, spending time with his disciples. He ate food as well. He still took time to do ordinary things. We still have to do these things, uh, despite the weightiness of our call to evangelize. So we, we, we want to heed that call to evangelize and, and be loud, if you will, with the gospel. Uh, but we also want, don't want to do that at the neglect of faithfulness in the ordinary things. So we are commended to live quietly. I sometimes uh, catch my children intentionally provoking the other. So sometimes one of them 
is very upset and the other one is laughing and continuing to do the thing that the other one asked them not to do. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> and uh, I think we all understand that. We've all done that. We've all seen that happen. And uh, this is something that the reality is we don't necessarily automatically just grow out of when we get older. We can have this edge to us that enjoys provoking people, that enjoys stirring up conflict, that likes to be in the middle, that likes to cause problems for other people. And this is what we're to be on guard about. So I think living quietly, as Paul is telling us to do, calls for wisdom. It calls for wisdom, thinking through what is unnecessary, what is necessary. What would be an unnecessary thing that would, we could be vocal about that would cause an unnecessary stir? Okay, that, that takes some wisdom. There are some issues out there that are legitimate issues. Um, I can think of several. The first thing that comes to mind would be the fact that we live in a culture in a world where we just slaughter babies. And we are told that's none of your business. We just kill them in the womb. No big deal. Well, I'd submit that's a, if, if someone wanted to uh, take that issue on, if someone in here, that would be a worthwhile thing. That's not an unnecessary issue. We're talking about uh, murder. But our demeanor and our attitude is not to be quarrelsome or meddling, as we'll see in a second. So 1 Timothy 3.3, a qualification for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 is that an elder is not to be quarrelsome. Okay, so that doesn't mean that you will never engage in a quarrel. This is, I think, an important thing to understand. There's a difference between engaging in necessary fights at times and being a quarrelsome person. There's a difference. So even, for example, with with regard to to elders, uh, Titus 1.9 Uh, makes it clear that although an elder is not to be quarrelsome, they are to be able to refute those who contradict good doctrine. So that that will necessitate a quarrel of some kind. If someone is teaching false doctrine and an elder has to step in and stop it, that is going to be a conflict. Um, But that's not to be done. The person doing it, the elder, is not to be a quarrelsome person. So again, we're not to be people who stir things up wherever we go just because we enjoy doing that. So I would suggest to us all that we beware unnecessary squabbles, whether it is at work or whether it is with family members or whether it's with one another here or whether it's on social media. Boy, there's enough of those. So again, I think this requires wisdom. There are important issues out there that are going to be worth speaking up on. And of course, there's people out there that will be offended no matter what you say uh, or no matter what you post. People will take offense at something. So we can't just be so afraid that we never speak. We overqualify everything. But my advice to us, suggestion would be to, to heed Paul's commands by guarding our hearts and checking our motives and doing this regularly, that we would constantly be guarding and checking, am I being quarrelsome? Before we engage in something, be it online or dispute with anyone, 
that we might come into contact with to just be checking ourselves. Am I, what's motivating this? Am I just wanting to fight or am I wanting uh, the, the, the gospel to be clarified or is this a matter of truth or something that's inju- unjust that needs to be uh, stated? I mean, whatever it is, be guarding your heart. Make sure you're not motivated by wanting to fight and then if you, if you seem to be, have right motives, then engage and do so graciously. This goes for, for all, all places in life. And, and places like work, you don't need to do battle with your boss over every little thing. And so let us learn to, to engage in disagreements uh, with graciousness, um, particularly as we engage the unbelieving world. In the, in the Bible, as far as I can tell, Paul is the most gracious in his disagreement and his confrontation uh, the most gentle with the pagans who really know nothing of the Lord. Um, and he's a lot harsher with, with people who claim to be believers, claim to represent the truth, but are, are perverting the gospel. He's a lot, he's a lot more stern with, with those people. So let's learn to engage in disagreements with graciousness. Let's guard our hearts and remember that rebellion is sin. Rebellion, First Samuel 15, 23, rebellion is, the sin, is like the sin of divination. And King KJV says witchcraft. So it's, a, it's not a small thing to be rebellious. So let's not, don't assume that your every objection is righteous. So ordinary faithfulness includes quiet living, not unnecessarily stirring up controversy. Uh, second thing, ordinary faithfulness includes minding your own affairs. Minding your own affairs. Uh, Paul says there, I urge you uh, he says, you should aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. This is pretty straightforward. Uh, it means meddling, not meddling in others' affairs that don't concern you. It's basically mind your business. I think we know that phrase fairly well. Mind your business. Again, as we get to 2 Thessalonians 3, we're going to see there in verse 11 following that some of the people in Thessalonica, they were busybodies. They uh, were not working. And uh, instead, they had time on their hands, and they were then getting involved in business that was not their own. They were meddling in things that didn't concern them. And again, exactly what form this took in Thessalonica, we're not told. We don't know for sure. If the issue is that we have patrons and we have clients, clients are Christians, um, we know that some clients, uh, again, from Philo, who wrote, uh, wrote about this uh, comments on how some clients were worthless fellows because public discourse involved meddling in other people's business and endless indiscriminate talk mixing true with false. So you can see if that's how these clients acted and if Christians were clients and engaging in this, you can see how that would be problematic. So it's possible um, that these Thessalonians, some of them were clients who spent their days in such ignoble pursuits. So again, regardless though of the exact situation, leading, uh, uh, they, they, the, the, these people were stirring things up and meddling in business, not their own. And the Bible actually speaks to this issue of meddling in a number of places. First uh, Peter 4.15 says this. I think it's helpful for what Paul is saying in First Thessalonians. So Peter writes, First Peter 4.15, uh, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. 
He goes on to say, yet if anyone suffers for being a Christian, let him not be ashamed. So I think this is, this is helpful, this is fitting, because I think what Paul is trying to do in 1 Thessalonians is he doesn't want them to stir things up unnecessarily. And, Paul, and what Peter is saying is he doesn't want Christians to suffer for the wrong reasons. Okay, suffering will come, we know this as Christians, it will come. But what Peter is saying, and I think it's the same thing Paul's getting at, is that it shouldn't be uh, for sin. We shouldn't be suffering because we sin. And meddling is one of the sins that both Peter and Paul identify. Uh, likewise, Proverbs twenty six seventeen says, Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. That's a bad idea, because if you grab a dog by the ears, he's going to bite you in the face. And, then, and so that's, that's, what it's, that's what meddling in other people's business is likened to by God's inspired word, Proverbs 26, 17. So mind your business. I, so a, a couple of thoughts on what this looks like, um, I think will hopefully be, be helpful. We live in a... a very individualistic uh, world where, you know, we're not allowed to have, say anything about anyone else um, that's considered meddling. Um, so, so even the issue referenced earlier is abortion. Um, it's none of our business, we're told, uh, that's meddling in what a woman wants to do with her own body. So that's the kind of world we live in. So it might be helpful just to think for a second about what, what is meddling and what isn't it. So a couple of things, this is not exhaustive, but I'd say a couple of things that meddling is not. It's not asking how others are doing or taking genuine concern for their soul or spiritual health or condition. Okay, this is a good thing. It's a, to have a godly concern for someone, to see something that might alarm you uh, in, in a brother or sister and to ask them about it. Or simply, you have no idea, but you're just going to ask, how are you doing? How are you really doing? How are things uh, between you and the Lord? Where are you at? You can, we can ask those questions. That's good. That's godly concern. I don't think that's meddling. Um, meddling is not gently calling one another on sin, confronting one another on sin. This is actually our Christian obligation. So Matthew 18, Matthew 5, uh, there's other places to we'll talk about, um, about our need to go to our brother or sister if they sin against us. Um, if, if we know they have something against us, to, to go to them. Uh, we're to gently restore one another. Galatians as well. Uh, if someone's caught in a sin, your spiritual should restore the person gent gently. And so doing that is actually our obligation. So uh, it's not meddling if, if there's sin to help to show the person uh, you know we're not allowed to say that's none of your business if i'm in sin well if you're especially if you're a member of our church it actually is we are called to 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 do this to to help each other out not to do this rudely but to gently so meddling is not gently calling one another on sin and again uh, meddling is not refuting false teaching again titus 1 9 says this is a necessary thing so there's a few things that uh, that don't fall under this meddling category, um, but a few that I think do. So what is meddling then? Gossip, certainly gossip, uh, digging up dirt on others, 
And so, uh, you know, you know for, the, for the purpose of gossip. Uh, so this, I mean, we can sometimes cleverly hide these things uh, if, if we want to. And, and, and sometimes we can fake concern for somebody, I suppose, uh, and ask. But again, to, to, to know this, you just, you have to test, test your heart and, and, and uh, be careful uh, when you speak of other people. What is it you're saying? Why is it you are saying it? And, uh, and if there is an issue or a concern, then you are called to go to that person. So gossiping is, is clearly wrong. Um, I would say inserting ourselves into situations and problems that have nothing to do with us. Uh, so uh, I think if you see a problem and you think you might be able to help with it, uh, even though it has nothing to do with you, I would say be very, very cautious before you enter into that. Whatever it might be, whether it's work or right here, just be very cautious before you enter into that. Be testing your hearts. Uh, we need to be careful that we're not just throwing ourselves into situations that really don't concern us. So we need to just be careful. And as we'll see, this meddling tends to happen all the more when we don't have anything to do, when we're not doing uh, our work or we have lots of extra time on our hands. We'll see that in a moment. So again, th- this is not really a radical thing, the idea of, not, of minding your own business or minding your own affairs. It's not really a, a radical thing, but it's also something that's not practiced well. It's not practiced well by many people, inside or outside the church. It's a struggle. And it's commended to us now as being something we are called to be faithful at. This is a temptation. Meddling in other people's business is a temptation no matter how old you are. It's a temptation throughout the ages uh, that doesn't go away. So again, guard against this. Guard against gossip. Don't initiate it. If someone wants to talk to you about someone, and it is, don't engage it. If someone wants to uh, to get your ear and talk about somebody in a gossiping manner, uh, don't hear them out. Stop it right there. Whether this is here or whether it's at work, wherever it might be, um, you know, uh, the world loves gossip. Uh, so don't go with it. Don't meddle. Live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Uh, I would suggest, if this is a temptation, if you read Proverbs and consider all, just look for all the things that talks about the tongue or about your mouth or about words and consider that before you talk, um, really in any context, but uh, especially if it comes to other people or business that's not your own. I'd suggest we spend more time examining our own sins than the sins of others around us. Uh, we have a lot of our own business we can be taking care of um, that we don't need to be just running to other people's business. So we certainly want to look for ways to help other people, uh, but not be meddlesome. So as ordinary as it may seem, we are called to mind our own affairs. And thirdly, ordinary faithfulness includes working hard at your job, working hard at your job. So here in verse 11, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So working with your hands here, I think, is an antidote to meddling and to living loudly. It's going to help them. Instead, get a job. Do work. Uh, Busy yourself with that and not these other things. 
So Paul tells them here to work with their hands. Uh, working with your hands is a, a reference to labor. I mean, I think we still use that term. I think we get that. Uh, it would be a, a labor job like what Paul had. He worked with his hands. He was a, a tent maker or perhaps a, a leather worker. He talks about his labor and toil back in chapter 3, verse 9. I, I don't think what he's saying here is that a, a laborer's job is the only sort of work that is commendable, but that in this situation that the Thessalonians faced, it was a way for them to make an honorable living before the Lord, though it's not something that's an overly impressive job. So it would allow them to work and to have their needs met without being dependent on other people. And so I think it's implicit here and, and it's explicit in 2 Thessalonians 3 that some of them were not working. They weren't working. So the question is why? Why in the world would these people not be working and have to be told to get a job? Well, some, some would argue it's because of their end times belief, their eschatology, uh, their belief about the end times. Because the, so the argument for that goes uh, something along the lines of that, that Paul constantly, regularly addresses uh, eschatology in 1 Thessalonians and again in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, and so uh, the argument is that they basically were so intent on waiting for Jesus that they quit their jobs and they just expected him any moment. And uh, so they, they quit their, their jobs and were just waiting. Uh, that's a fairly common view. Uh, but, but many also point out the fact that um, when, when Paul talks about calling people to work in First and Second Thessalonians, the immediate context is not talking about the end times. So, for example, here, the context is, is Paul started, as we saw last week, talking about brotherly love. Right Back up to the beginning of verse 9, verse 9 and 10, he's, he's talking about brotherly love, and that's what grammatically uh, verses 10 and 11 are, are, are uh, tied to. So it's related to verses 9 and 10. So it seems that all these things we're talking about today, living quietly, minding our own business, and, and working with our hands, are related to brotherly love in some way. So they're, they're, they're tied to how it is they were practicing love more than it is connected to eschatologies. So again, if we think of the system of patronage, which we know was going on, um, it could be that there were some in the congregation, in the church, that were clients, again, as I said, to patrons, and they weren't working, but again, were involved in promoting this patron and their ideas, voting for them in public, arguing for them, uh, and perhaps trying to gain a little bit of their own uh, notoriety through uh, having perhaps more uh, prominent patrons being under them. And it's possible then, as this was known to happen, that the patrons were not supplying the, the appropriate needs for the clients, and the clients are without. They're going without, and they're having to then fall back on their fellow brothers and sisters, the Christians, to supply their needs. And so you've got them dependent on aid from other Christians. And that's, uh, and I think we see that at the end of verse 12, which we'll get to in a second. And we see in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, if, if, if they're not willing to work, they should not eat. Okay, so again, being cli a client was kind of like having a job, uh, except it wasn't a job with your hands. You go, you argue, you're in public square, you're debating. They're providing services to the patron. 
And that is, I think, why Paul says, work with your hands. Don't get involved with that. Quit that. Live quietly. Mind your business, which is the opposite of what you're doing here, and get a job with your hands. Provide for yourself. And I think that is how it also uh, helps us see it's related to how they loved one another. You can see how it would be frustrating if somebody is an able-bodied person and they're a client to somebody and they still don't have enough to eat but they refuse to work and now they want you to provide for them. So you can see how this would be related to brotherly love, how Christians might love one another. And so work is suggested as the antidote to this. We, we tend to see work as our enemy. We tend to labor and toil for the weekend or for our vacation time. Or we labor and toil for our retirement, ideally, early, so we can do whatever it is we please. Uh, but work itself is not actually the problem. There are a lot of terrible jobs out there. I've had some. But, uh, but that is not actually in and of itself the problem. In the Garden of Eden, God actually gave work to Adam and then to Eve to do prior to the fall. So in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is before the fall. So work, having a job to do, was a good thing. Okay, after Eve arrives, is created, in Genesis 1.28, Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the fish, the birds, every living thing that moves on the earth. So they were given work to do. They were given job. And this work was to be a joy. Remember, this is prior to the fall, prior to sin. Work was to be joyful. But when they sinned, the ground was cursed. And the land brought forth weeds and thorns and other problems that would arise, which would make work difficult and toilsome. You can see that in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. That's part of the curse for Adam, is work is going to be really difficult for you now. So work is hard because of the fall, because of sin. But work itself is actually a good thing. And so that's, Paul can commend work to us as a worthy pursuit. It's part of the way mankind was or can exercise dominion. And it's also a way that God provides for us. Work is a good thing. And so we all have work to do. Whether you are a mechanic or a welder or a tradesman of some kind, a nurse, a secretary, or a stay-at-home mom, you have work to do. And you're called to do that work for the Lord. You belong to Him. You are first and foremost God's tradesman. You are first and foremost God's nurse, secretary, stay-at-home mom in service to your fellow man. And sometimes we have an unhelpful and unbiblical understanding of serving the Lord. We think that those who go into full-time ministry, they're off to serve the Lord, and the rest of us just get a job. But that's not, that's not the, the Bible's view of work. Whatever work we are doing is to be done to the glory of God. And so that absolutely includes your job. In fact, it includes anything you do. Your day off is still a day in which you are called to, to 
to work for the Lord, whatever it is you, you would be doing. Colossians 1, 17 and 23, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then again in 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So we need to fight to view work as a good thing. It's a way that the Lord provides for your needs. It's a blessing, even when it's stressful and difficult. The stress and the difficulty is part of the fall. It's the result of sin. Work is not your enemy. Sin is. And so commit yourself tomorrow, Monday, dreaded Monday, uh, to doing your job as unto the Lord. Doing it with integrity, with honesty, with joy, because it is for the Lord. So don't cut corners. Don't cheat your boss on your time card or anything else. Uh, Work as for the Lord. This is one of the ordinary ways that we are called to be faithful. Finally, notice uh, verse 12, just, just quickly, a couple of the purposes of faithfulness in these areas. Uh, he says, so, so to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, to do work with your own hands, as we instructed you, verse 12, so that, that's a statement of purpose, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So the first purpose is that we might be faithful as we are faithful in the ordinary. It is a way in which we walk faithfully and properly before the unbelieving world. That's what Paul means by outsiders. And so all of these things that we do that seem very unspectacular are part of our witness as as Christians and as a church. They adorn the gospel that we proclaim. So not being a busybody, not stirring things up, but working hard and doing that with integrity at work, that's going to complement, that's going to adorn the gospel that you believe and profess to believe and might share with people. So as others are getting dirt on people and gossiping, we are to remain quiet, to mind our business. While others are skimming on their job, doing the minimum to get through, we are called to delight in it, to work hard with a good attitude, and to work hard to provide for ourselves and our family. And the second purpose is stated as, so that you may be dependent on no one. Dependent on no one. If the issue is that you have patrons and clients, then Paul likely uh, wants them not to be dependent on unbelieving patrons. I think that would make sense. So he wants faithfulness before outsiders. Don't be dependent on that patron who, uh, you know, in engaging in uh, meddlesome activities. Instead, get a job and you'll be dependent on nobody. Uh, but additionally, the lack of work was causing dependence on other Christians. Other Christians are having to now make up the shortfall, as, as I said earlier. And, and there's likely that was re, uh, straining their relationships. And again, I think we can uh, understand that pretty, pretty straightforward. If we saw somebody who's very capable of working but refused to for whatever reason, um, what do we do with them? Do we uh, give all uh, you know, our money to that person or, or not? 
And so I think this is why this issue is brought up in the context of brotherly love. And so I think as we then seek to be faithful in these ordinary ways, it's not only providing a good testimony, walking rightly before the unbelieving world, but it's also a way that we then relate rightly to one another, not creating uh, unnecessary or uh, dependence. So we should help those who have need, most certainly, but we're not to be taken advantage of or taking advantage of one another. If someone can work, they should. Even in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul goes so far as to say, if they're not going to work, they shouldn't eat. Right? So clearly, uh, he's not saying just let everyone run over you and just take all of your money and your food. Uh, he has, for the believer, a call to work and to work hard. As Christians, we believe in some weighty truths, some glorious realities, uh, like eternity. The fact that everybody one day is going to stand before God, holy God, and give an account. That's heavy. We consider that a weighty reality. We would understand that sharing the gospel with other people is a weighty thing, which is, I think, sometimes why we're hesitant or fearful in that task. We're concerned about it because we want to do that well and do it right because we're talking about really, really important and heavy things, like whether one would, would be, suffer eternity in hell, the wrath of God, or be forgiven, made righteous, justified by God, and to live with Him for eternity. Those are, are, are certainly heavy things that are worth our time to think about and consider um, and, and should be at the forefront of our attention, and we should be uh, looking to share that uh, these realities with other people, but we also dare not think about those things at the neglect of faithfulness in the ordinary areas of life. We are to live in anticipation of Christ's return, and we're going to see this in the next couple of weeks as we keep going through 1 Thessalonians. We're to live in anticipation of Christ's return, but we're also not to do this in a panicked sort of way. But abounding in brotherly love, living quietly, minding our own affairs, and working hard at our jobs, we are still called to do this to the glory of God. And these things will cause us to then walk rightly before unbelievers and also to relate rightly to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And God, we have, have great need of your help to be faithful in the ordinary things. God, the, we're talking about ordinary things, but they're not easy things. They might be unspectacular to many to just work hard or to mind our own business. And yet, we are fallen sinful people. And even as we fail to be faithful in ordinary things, we are reminded of our great need for Jesus Christ. And we are grateful that it is not our faithfulness in these areas that would commend us to you. That we cannot be made right through our own righteous deeds, but they are like filthy rags if we are bringing them to you 
to justify ourselves. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ to cover us, to be imputed, to be given to us, or else we cannot and will not stand on the day that we come face to face with you, the holy creator of everyone and everything. And so we thank you that Jesus has come and died to, to, to save sinners like us. And I pray that we would uh, just rejoice in that truth again, that we would remember that, that we would, when we fail, be quick to repent and to see Jesus as a faithful high priest whose righteousness we indeed need, whose sacrifice we need to cover our sins, that we would lay claim to that, that we are chief of sinners and need Jesus when we fail, which is daily. And so I pray that you would uh, grant us grace, that we would trust Jesus, that we would then set out to be faithful in even ordinary ways, that we would abound in love for one another, that we would not unnecessarily stir up conflict, that we would mind our business, and that we would work hard at the jobs that you have called us to, whatever jobs we may have now. So Lord, we pray that you would uh, strengthen each person that's here, grant us uh, uh, courage to live for you, to be bold in our evangelism. I pray that you would uh, even just bless the rest of our time of fellowship together as we eat together. And uh, Lord, may it, we leave encouraged, having been with your people and having spent time in your word. And we ask you to do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.